the, uh, the topic is of great interest to me. And, and Chris got to disagree with me uh, quite violently and directly uh, a week or two ago when we were on drop shipping. So now I'll take the opportunity to disagree with Chris. I don't believe that pre-building kits renders them not kits. I think there is an option to pre-build or just in time. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now... Here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm, Elevate IQ. If you are an e-commerce brand, kitting would not be new to you. Kitting could be a great tool to increase the average order value and differentiate yourself from the competition without necessarily launching a product line. But kitting requires your inventory to be aligned across channels to deliver the intended results. Without the inventory alignment, it may result in missed opportunities customer experience issues due to not getting their orders as per their timeline and worse yet, customer churn. Kitting also requires the SKUs to be aligned to forecast the dependent inventory items accurately. Finally, kitting requires your pricing to be consistent across channels. So, what are the best practices to implement kitting for your business? In today's episode, we invited a panel of cross-functional experts for a live interview on LinkedIn who brings significant expertise to discuss the pros and cons of kitting business processes, best practices. We covered many grounds, including the difference between kit and a pallet, kit and web, and just-in-time kits versus pre-built kits. Finally, we discussed how to account for labor with kitting and which types of inventories can support kits such as raw material, FG, MRO, and QC. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's show. And if you're joining for the first time, this is part of our digital transformation series for which we meet every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. We pick one topic related to digital transformation and we always have a very exciting panel that is willing to share the insights and wisdom for today we have a very interesting topic called kitting so we are going to have a lot of fun saying that before we do that we are going to start with everybody's intro i am going to start with uh, my intro if you don't know me i am principal at elevate iq Elevate IQ is the independent ERP and digital. Uh, I've been doing uh, uh, ERP implementations and kidding is always fun. On that note, I am uh, going to move to Chris for his intro. 
Thanks, Sam. Chris Garadini, uh, President and Owner of Turnkey Technologies. Uh, we've been implementing Microsoft Dynamics ERPs a little over 28 years now. I had a birthday recently. So look forward to the topic. It's an exciting time. Thanks. Thank you so much, uh, Chris. Uh, Chuck, can I move to you next? Yes, sir. Thank you, Sam. My name is Chuck Coxhead. I create warehouse superheroes. I make them fast and accurate with mobile and wearable uh, technology. I have 35 years in manufacturing. Uh, it's all I know. I've done about everything in manufacturing you can do. Amazing. Thanks. Dave, can I ask you to do yourself now? Yeah, thanks, everybody. Hey, everybody. My name's uh, Dave Chrysler, and I own a operations consulting business working with manufacturing leaders to help them systemize their business. Uh, come to you with more than 20 years in operations, implementing ERP and systemizing businesses. So excited to be here, Sam. Thanks for having me. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much uh, for being here, uh, Dave. And if you're in the audience and joining for the first time, we send your uh, comment and question. Uh, we typically cover them during the show. You can get, them, get to them because of time. Our panelists are going to make sure that you your answers. On that note, I am going to start with the first question, and that is going to be for Chris. So, Chris, let's say people don't know what kitting is, and even if they know, sometimes they are going to be confused. Because kidding could mean a lot of things. I have seen a lot of different variations in versions. Sometimes they are bundles. Sometimes people feel that, you know, what bombs are kids. You know, it's all over the place, especially if you talk to e-commerce people. Okay. So when we think of the kitting, what does kitting mean from the front-end perspective? And that is the term that you have used. So I'm using your term, front-end as well as back-end. Chris. I appreciate it because I was going to say nomenclature could be confusing because kitting has nothing to do with making cats. But as you think about a kit, an assembly, a bomb, everybody's like, which is which? And some manufacturers say, well, I'm kidding. Well, that's not correct. So really, in the, in the, the simplest definition of a kit is you're grabbing stuff, throw it in the box as it goes out the door. Okay? So if, if everything's already in the box on the shelf, it's not a kit. But again, you're grabbing a box, apple, banana, throw it in the box, it goes out the door. Okay, It's not assembled, it's not manufactured, it's not pre-built. But it really is a process where you're grabbing a bunch of components. And typically it's one line item on a sales order that has all these sub-components. Okay? Again, it's not manufacturing, but it's one line, it's got a price, and it's got all these little guys underneath it that have costs. Okay, Price at the top line, cost within these different components. So if you think about just that definition, and you think about capture, how do I take the order? How does the customer enter the order? But customer service, how do I capture the order? And then in the middle, we have all that planning. Is how do I make sure that I have enough inventory to cover these all these different line items and do the analysis and what's the most popular and which ones aren't I selling so that we don't have this, well, I got six out of seven of them and I can't ship the order because you don't want to do a double ship because it'll cost more freight and you'll lose it. And then there's the backside piece again as you look at just pick, pack, and ship. So let's talk about some of the front-end complexities and you think about do I define a kit? And, and again, there's the first thing, is it, a, is it an empty kit? Is it a kit that has the five things in it already? But I don't want number five. I want yellow instead of blue. So if you think about complexities in kits, and are they standard kits? Meaning, great, he bought it. You get those five things, no choices. But you know how consumers are. They want to trade substitutes. So now we've got this other framework where, great, you get a kit, you can have pick any five. Okay, so now the customer is picking five. And if you think about the the technology and the constraint is you're defining subsets of kits within your product master so that, oh, there's 40 possible combinations. They get to pick five with this kit, 10 with this kit. So there's a lot of logic that could be on the front end. But again, you go back to that. Do I got to remove items to put items in? Are those items already in a kit? Are there standard kits? Um, so again, it could be a lot of complexity as you just think about how do you make the customer experience and whether the customers do it on an e-com site. There's a lot of logic there. 
I've seen people in the back office systems have that problem where they got 10 lines and they're removing one and adding one and removing one and adding one. And, oh, that one's not in stock. And, and they're dealing with a lot of iterations trying to build a kit. Okay, so, so there's a front-end complexity. Again, two experiences. Customer does it. Sales operator does it. Nonetheless, you've got something, whether they're pre-built, whether you take substitutes, how do you constrain that? And again, a lot of the ERP system logic isn't, isn't perfect there. So that's the thing that I'm going to tell you as you look at that business process. Um, in the middle, um, analytics. Again, how do you plan? How do you manage? Um, how do you stock those? And again, you've got commitments to lead times and, oh, we'll ship within a week or you're maybe you're trying to do one day ship. So it's really going to be difficult to, uh, you know, make sure you're stocking to those proper levels um, for, the, for the popular components. Right. And again, you may preload that kit, like I said, with the things you really want to sell and hopefully they don't take them out. But so there's a, a little bit of relationship between a template kit and how you're planning that data. Backside, backside, you know, again, I'll let I'll let the fulfillment guys talk about that. But really, you get the box right here. Now that I've got a list of they want a red, a blue, and a yellow, I throw them all in there and they go out the door. Again, am I scanning each of those? It gets interesting whether the system supports a kit level component scan. So if you think about warehouse management, and I'm sure Chuck will have something to say about that. But I'm going to stop there because there's a lot going on between that process. Hopefully that gets amazing insights there overall, um, you know, from the kitting perspective. First of all, setting the, you know, stage uh, in terms of what kit is. So there is definitely going to be a confusion. Uh, and one of the problems that I have personally seen overall with respect to kitting is always planning for kitting. And you touched briefly on that, that, you know, what you can either define it beforehand uh, or you could probably not define it. And if you do that, then obviously your inventory planning is going to be all over the place. So, Chris, from this perspective, have you seen any sort of best in terms of what is the right way of doing it? Should they be defining the kits and that actually makes the inventory planning easier or should they not be defining? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the customer example I had, they sold um, balloons and floral stuff into major grocery chains. And they did have these kits pre-planned. But again, the customer could substitute. So that's where the challenges come in. And so what they're doing is they're assuming that 80 percent of the kit is going to stay on the kit. And so they're planning those items a little differently than the options. And I think part of this is, again, as you get some historical perspectives, they got to really look at the popular items. And so they're, you know, it's the ABC type of uh, analysis. What are the fast moving kit components? Have those preloaded on the kit. So there's not as many changes, right? You don't want to put all the junk on there where they have to take everything off and rebuild it. But that's, that's typically, there's a strategy there where you're trying to land the primary components based on popularity on the kit. So the operator, if they're taking orders, don't have to make as many changes. And likewise, the customer experience. It's okay. It's 90% of what I want. I'm just going to change out one. But then again, you're planning your stock levels different on those primary kit components, what you might consider a secondary option. So much for those insights, uh, Chris. So Chuck, I'm actually coming to you and, uh, you know, I'm going to have similar question. Obviously, in your case, you have actually run the manufacturing uh, and the distributions. In your case, you are going to have far deeper insights in terms of what to get, what not to get, what is going to be a bomb, what is going to be a configurable bomb, versus, you know, what is going to be a kit, right? So uh, overall, in terms of deciding which SKUs are going to be the kit versus that are not going to be the kitable component. So what would you say, uh, you know, what is a kit? So I come at this from a different perspective. I mean, a kit is actually intended to create value. And kitting is the great differentiator. Really, it is. Whether it be you have an e-commerce product and it's a suggested kit. So it might be a suggested um, set of accessories that go along with a primary product. And as Chris said, you just dump that into a box and you call that a kit. But it's also possible to package these things with value add. So and when you do that, they could be there depending on, you know, going beyond e-commerce that could be custom packaging uh, in manufacturing. My manufacturing experience, I might need to package everything in. ESD um, 
safe packaging, electrostatic discharge safe, so that I'm getting these components into a particular packaging that's not going, it's going to be conductive and not trans, you know, create a, a static shock or something like that. And that's an example where you have something very specific and you're adding additional value that's specific to the customer. So you have on the one hand, you just have a bundle of accessories and then you have this other, you know, high value item. Um, and in most cases, it's always a customer centric, it's always a customer centric and ideally it should be always customer centric thing. Um, and the kidding always has to come from a place of value, whether it be the front end, okay, where they're specifying as kit, as Chris also described, you, you have a custom specification for a basket or, or a box of components that meet your need. It could be color. It could be performance. It could be any number of things. It could be size, um, to, as I say, so that value out of the, the back end, the value can also go into services and software and different things where you can customize, you know, each individual component with a different value that would be that would be uh, very different. So, I mean, that's the, from the manufacturing and operations standpoint, that's really what you what you may be up against. It, it's not simply about, okay, I put the parts into a bag, I put the parts into a box, now they're a different part number. And make no mistake about it, from the inventory perspective, they are absolutely positively a different part number. But you know, the the value uh, the value defines what it is, and that is the myriad of different things are as different as the number of businesses that are out there. Okay, very interesting insights there. So obviously, I'm going to have some questions for you related to the warehouse because you know that's where the real challenges are going. So I don't know what you have seen overall from the warehouse processes perspective. Do you typically recommend that, you know what, if you are doing the hitting, then they should be repackaged and then they should be stocked in the warehouse or should they be more of the hitted as they are picking in the warehouse? So in your experience from the warehouse perspective, what is the right way of hitting? So I, in my opinion, you really should not add that value and turn it into another SKU uh, until, first of all, you truly understand what's in demand. Okay. You you. And you also want to add that value as late in the process as possible. The worst thing that can happen, especially in a distribution operation where margins are pretty low in, compared to other types of businesses, the worst thing that can happen is that you have to add additional labor to de-kit something in order to create something else. That's that's a no-no. You, you can quickly turn your business into you know a loser if you get yourself into that sort of pickle. So the latest you can add that value in the process, the better off. If it's just some things into a box, that's ideal. Um, it's when you truly have good planning data, when you know that this is repeatable. Uh, and even then, you know, you have to, you know, take a look, put your industrial engineering hat on, say, what's the most effective way to do this? I could make 5,000 of these things and I could reduce the cost of this labor that I'm putting into it, this value that I'm putting into it, but I'm going to decrease my agility. I'm going to, you know, create a rigidity in my available inventory that may become untenable to the business. So it takes a lot of planning, a lot of understanding. So add the inventory as late as possible and don't get yourself into a box, a, a, a literal constrained box. So if I am coming to you and obviously you come from a very, very, very different industry and I don't know whether you have seen the kits in your industry. If you have seen what are those kits, do you follow the similar rules as what Chuck pointed out? Because the uh, kits in the FMCG industry are going to be very different from, you know, you talk about print manufacturing. That's a very, very, very different industry. So in your experience, what have you seen what works, uh, when it comes to... Yeah, I, I think both Chuck and Chris hit on uh, a bunch of really great points. And, you know, to 
from from my experience, it all comes back to you know the data behind it, right? If you if you do not have clean data, if your inventory um, is not being tracked well and accurate, it's going to add to the confusion when it comes to not only creating the kits, but then clearing those, uh, you know, through your inventory system. And and I agree with where Chuck was going in terms of, you know, at what point do you create those kits? Because while, and again, tying in what Chris was saying, if you have these predetermined kits, which I, I'm not necessarily opposed to, and I've seen, um, I've seen some really good predetermined kits um, that satisfy that customer needs. So obviously I do agree that's first you have to, it's, it's customer dependent based on, you know, what they're looking for. But in both of those scenarios, I've seen situations where it has worked out to create pre um, you know, pre-made kits and put those back into inventory as an actual SKU, which uh, you know, isn't technically a kit at the time it gets fulfilled. Uh, but, but you have those same processes within that subassembly that you're trying to create. Um, and so that that's kind of one side of it. And and like I said, I do agree with where Chuck was going in terms of wanting to add that value at the last possible step, because I have seen situations where you have had to unkit um, thousands, tens of thousands of kits because the planning was not uh, established, let's say. Uh, that's the best way to say it. And so you can really get yourself into a jam with that. And you can really not not just the time it takes to deconstruct those kits, but you could be talking about, um, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars in obsolete inventory uh, along those same lines if it's not been planned well. And there's yes, there's some other ways that you can maybe clear through that inventory. But those are some of the the challenges that I've seen kind of tying back to what Chuck and and Chris were saying. And the other thing I would add um, in my experience is you know, those internal processes. So even starting in that customer service side, Chris, I think you mentioned it, but you know, how those kits are laid out in the order entry and making sure that that it matches up with what's actually going to happen out on the shop floor and through inventory, the rest of your process, because you don't want to be spending additional time either adding or removing those items uh, as, you know, maybe it's a custom kit that comes in from e-com. So you have to be mindful of that and you really have to make sure that you're looking at the detailed part of the process to not only satisfy what the customer demand is, but how it's going to flow through your, you know, your entire operation. Okay, some very interesting commentary there, and you added some very interesting layers that I want to peel some more, uh, and that is going to be number one, you mentioned the term called assembly, right? Uh, and subassembly typically in my experience is used more in the context of and when you are doing the manufacturing. So I don't know whether you guys use the subassembly as part of the kitting process as well, because sometimes that could be confusing. What is manufacturing and what is kitting? These two are very different things. Sometimes people mix them. And in my experience, you know, that actually throws off your inventory. Uh, you know, you really need to define what is a kit versus what is your real production bomb that is being manufactured. And the other layer that uh, you had mentioned overall from the order entry perspective. So there are two ways of doing the kits. In some cases, you want to reveal the components that are going to be part of the kits. In other cases, the you cannot reveal it to, uh, you know, too much information for the customer, too many questions for, on the code. <laughs> so sometimes that could be a lot of trouble for you. So I don't know, uh, Dave, have you seen both of these cases? Let's say the order entry part in your industry where the customers are demanding, sometimes they are not demanding. 
Yeah, it, it could it could be both, right? Depending on again how they are used to purchasing it and how it's really how it's being represented. What you know, most likely in an e-com setting, right? Um, how it's being represented on there. But yes, I've seen situations, uh, you know, where where you've had to do both, where you've had to expand it uh, and you've had to eliminate it to make sure that uh, you know that you're not showing all of the detail out on the on the customer side. So um, a lot of the orders that we would handle that way uh, would be blind shipped. So, you know, especially in a situation where you've got, you know, packing lists going out in a blind ship situation to an end user, uh, you know, in a B2B space to an end user, you know, more times than not, you definitely don't want to show the details behind, um, you know, what what ultimately is getting kitted out. But again, it, it that dependent on uh, where it initiates. So, and then as far as what I was saying, Sam, on the kind of uh, sub-assembly slash kitting component, um, what I really meant by that is they they were kits, but they were being created, uh, you know, kind of manufactured, if you will, uh, through a sub-assembly process to be put back into inventory. So, so technically kits still, but but really handled as a kind of manufactured sub-assembly item that would be entered back into inventory under a separate SKU. Amazing insights. So much, uh, Dave, for that. And guys, if you have any... Uh, okay, go ahead, Chris. So if you build it and put it on the shelf, it's not a kit. Sorry. <laughs> it, anyway. Yeah, so I think we are going to have a little debate there, uh, you know, and then Tom yeah, yeah, yeah. is, uh, uh, you know, getting ready for... Um, for the debate there. So obviously, Tom, thank you so much for uh, making it in uh, because obviously I cannot afford to miss you. I want you to introduce yourself uh, whenever a chance. Along with that, I want your perspective overall in terms of what is a kit, what is not a kit, and how would you feel if somebody was trying to make the cancer medical device as a kit inside the ERP? How would you feel about it? Well, so uh, several questions there. So First, again, apologies to everyone. My name is Tom Rodden, uh, a former CIO at a med device company. Uh, Sam was asking me specifically about uh, med device and uh, kidding. Um, <clears throat> but I'm also uh, an ERP consultant and in a prior life uh, for 10 years worked at GE as a, a logistics uh, leader, uh, director of logistics for uh, GE Lighting at one time. <clears throat> um, so was involved in uh, operational processes like kidding, um, not just as an IT support for those operations as I've later uh, evolved in my career. So anyway, um, the uh, the topic is of great interest to me and and Chris got to disagree with me uh, quite violently and directly uh, a week or two ago when we, we were on drop shipping. So now I'll take the opportunity to disagree with Chris. I don't believe that pre-building kits renders them not kits. I think there isn't option to pre-build or just in time. I think, at least for me, the definition of a kit is that it's not really an assembly of parts in a in a single into a single unit, into an actual assembly. It is still a collection or just bundle of separate items that have been, <clears throat> in typical cases, put into a bigger box. They, they, they've been packaged with some bubble wrap, shrink wrap, <clears throat> Put into a box, but when the customer opens it and removes the elements, they are separate individual items. Even if we've created a single SKU for that outer packaged box that contains these five or ten different items. So, at least in my experience and how we've used it at GE and I've used it throughout my career, a kit is really more of a bundle of components or parts or finished goods 
uh, that we want to sell as a collection. Um, and they could be just in time assembled, if you will, or they could be gathered together in advance and put on a shelf. But they are sold as a separate SKU. Um, make no mistake about it. That's that I think is part of the classic kit definition. When I entered into the IT world, one of the key elements to distinguish just-in-time kits versus pre-built kits was kind of what Dave was saying. Um, for just-in-time kits, where we get an order from a customer and it contains, you know, there's five different distinct elements that are themselves maybe each a finished good, but they could be bundled together and sold as a collection under a new SKU. For that, as a just-in-time gathering process in the warehouse, um, where we would have a, a station to do the packaging and create that, that feeling of it's a single item in a sense, um, we used uh, a, what we called a sales bomb. So that didn't go to the factory. It would explode the one item that the customer ordered into five different elements or units, um, SKUs, that would be picked, brought to the packing station, assembled, put into the outer carton, labeled as a single SKU, and then shipped to the customer. So that would be the just-in-time process with a sales bomb. But where we were pre-building, kind of to Dave's point, we were using production orders. Now, they weren't real assemblies. They were simply taking those five different items and putting them into an outer box. But because it was pre-built, um, people were using a production order process with an extremely simple routing that just said, pick these five things and put them in a box. So it, it wasn't a classic production order, but that was how we did the pre-build. Um, so it, that may help some people, at least, Sam. I'm not sure everybody would agree with me, but but that's how I've always thought of um, kits and pre-built versus just-in-time built kits. So uh, obviously, very interesting commentary there. I'm pretty sure Chris is going to have a follow-up, uh, you know, comment there. And I'm I, sure too. I, I, I like the <laughs> love, you know, between Chris and Tom. This is getting really interesting. Maybe Dave, you should pick somebody, man, uh, you know, and make it interesting. Okay, so Tom, <laughs> um, the question I'm going to so, have. Chris is ready. He's ready. He's ready to <laughs> jump in. But go ahead, Sam. Okay, uh, so the question I'm going to have for you is the people who are not really familiar with the operational process and they are not familiar with how to structure these queues for the kits, for them, sometimes it could be very good. If you think about it from the data model perspective, from the structuring perspective, let's say if I compare a pallet and a kit. So let's say if you were to compare a pallet versus kit, well, how would you describe a difference to a manufacturing executive? They just don't know what's a pallet versus what's a kit. You said a pallet. Yeah. A pallet. Yeah. Let's say you're building a pallet or container, uh, you know, as opposed to building a kit, right? I mean, that could be, that could contain a lot of different SKUs and the items. Yeah. And that's what yeah. you would do, let's say. In a well, kit. I mean, a pallet is not typically an SKU. It, it may be a collection of items, but on the shipping list, on the invoice, you know, in terms of how they're priced and billed, um, they are all separate items. And when you unwrap, you know, take off the, the stretch wrap and, and take apart that, that pallet, it is still a collection of completely individual items from, from every point of view. There is no actual kit there. There is no single SKU which collects these into a, a, a unit. Um, and that unit is not just physical, right? It's from a pricing point of view. Um, as well, right? Um, so 
the 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 the, um, the kit is is much more than in my mind a pallet. Um, you can have a big kit that might be pallet sized, I guess, um, but that that is different than what you typically think of as just throwing product on a pallet, stretch wrapping it, it put it loaded onto a, a truck or a trailer. Um, that's not a kit. Amazing insights there. Thank you so much, Tom. And I just cannot wait for Chris's turn because I just want to know what he's going to say to me. And Chris, I have one piece of advice for you not mess with Tom, okay? I'm not messing with Tom. <laughs> it's just so analytically speaking, analytically speaking, so if, if in your pre-built, on-the-shelf, bunch of loose items in a box, okay, call it what you want. Let's let's dig down into what's the data elements on the ERP. You got a one line item now on the SOW on your sales order. One line item. Typical ERPs, you put a manufacturer. It's a manufactured item. If it's you take it, you've got component consumption. You got to finish good. I guarantee it's going through WIP to get into that box loose. What loose or connected, it doesn't matter. But on your sales order, you got a single line item. You're not you're not seeing component detail on a sales order. It's not natural to an ERP. Again, now let's fast forward. You sold it. Where's your sales analysis? That that item. You get that item as your sales analysis. You have no visibility from a sales perspective of the kit components by customer or by any of the dimensions related to the customer. They're consumed as component usage. You'll get component usage, no question. You'll say, oh, I can tell how much I'm using. I don't know where it's going. I don't know who's buying it. But you lose something there. And again, I think that that's one aspect of just pre-built cost, components, visibility. The customer buys a kit. He sees a little bit of the kit. And most systems will track the kit level items, the components, through sales analysis. So you'd actually be able to say, okay, who's buying the red apple in their kits? How many do we sell? Where are they going? Is there any type of marketing analysis? But I think you lose that aspect of it. I mean, again, in, in the end of the day, if it's so popular, you pre-build it and put it on the shelf. Again, it's a production. I think you would agree with that. But, you know, again, I think that's really the major difference I see there. And But the, the pre-build versus the line items. And again, I think the analysis later on is one of the things you give up there. And I think that's it. But it's just like your medical device. You sold it as a unit. You got there. It was a kit because it broke. <laughs> but that's one perspective. It's the sales analysis because looking at consumption, you're not going to get the same analytics. And again, when you're doing manufacturing, got all this component consumption, right? You're getting your planning data. You can tell what you're using, you're reordering and so forth. But, um, and again, could you get some popularity based on analyzing component use? Again, most ERP systems aren't going to have the analytics built to really study the component consumption by markets, by customer and so forth. So that's the, that's the one thing you give up with that approach. That's it. I'm not picking any. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, Dave, you had a comment? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I, I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective, Chris, and, and you bring up a really great point on the sales and analytics part of the that particular scenario. In the particular case I was talking about, uh, since I was responsible for operations, I didn't really care about that side. So uh, it, it didn't impact me. Kidding, uh, of course. <laughs> so, but that, it's a really, it's a really great point uh, that I that I did that I did not. So, thank you. And, and I think there's another way to look at this as well. I mean, you're you're talking about direct and indirect labor as well. If you're actually creating this, if you're creating a work order, you have a chargeable work order to which you can do direct labor. If you have a sales bomb, okay, you, and your packaging time, whatever time you have. All of that labor is going to indirect. Now, I'll, this is where I get on the side of the CFO and the controller and say, okay, you know, and in most cases, we want as much direct labor as possible, okay, into our processes. So, you know, keep our overhead low uh, to oversimplify it. Um, so there's that financial aspect of it as well, where you're, you're looking at this thing and saying, okay, how am I structuring this thing? And honestly, it, it, I can see that there are, organizations out there that it's just a function of their mindset. 
I really don't care. I'm just going to put all my shipping toward, you know, all shipping and packaging toward indirect labor. And I'm going to minimize the number of work orders because it's just easy. And that's just the way I do it. And you could come across that, I'm sure. Likewise, you could have just the opposite where they just say, put everything into a work order as much as possible uh, and push it through my system that way, depending on the bent of the organization. So I think some of this is going to be subjective to a certain extent, depending on the organization and how they run and choose to. But I do believe that, you know, Truly, it is very clear cut. You know, you're putting labor in, you put it on the shelf, it's askew, right? The fact that you put it to the shelf or you advance it to the next higher level is irrelevant. You're still delivering it in a sense in the inventory manner. Amazing insights there. So I think, uh, you know, we have very different perspectives overall in terms of what a kit really is. And I definitely want to hammer this point a little bit more. So I am going to offer some commentary from my side and then probably you guys can add, uh, you know, some more there. So one of the differences that I have personally seen is going to be the capabilities of ERP system. Some ERP systems are really, really, really deep with their capabilities of hitting. And I think the place where Tom is coming, because SAP has one of the deepest, uh, you know, hitting capabilities. Uh, and when we talk about just-in-time hitting versus pre-built kitting, you can do all of that as part of your proof inside the ERP system. Now, sales analysis, very interesting point, Chris, okay? So, in again, in some ERP systems, what you could do is you can literally hide this more from the presentation. So, that does not really impact your sales analysis because, yes, the customer is probably not going to see the bundle, but that is still going to be included as part of your sales analysis. The SKUs are still part of your kit, so you can sell. You are simply not presenting it to the customer. So again, some ERP systems do support the presentation aspect. Uh, some ERP systems don't, so probably that's where the disconnect is overall from the sales analysis perspective. But there are many different configurations that are available when it comes to kitting, depending upon the depth of the ERP system. So again, I am actually going to do one more round with everybody. What do you guys think? Uh, I don't know. Do you guys have any comment? Tom, follow-up commentary? Uh, well, I, I agree with the point you made, Sam. My experience is largely SAP, um, both when I was a GE uh, and uh, in my IT world uh, as a consultant at Varian, uh, the medical device company. And um, yeah, we used sales bombs and you know, you could actually configure it to show the sub items in that sales bomb or show only the top item uh, so the customer could see what they want. You could configure it down to you know, customer specific preference. Um, obviously, when we wanted that to explode for the warehouse, the pick list had to show all the items. So, again, the sales order might only show the top level bomb or, or sales sales item and the full bomb would be on the pick list. Um, and there are, you know, tools like handling units, HUs in, in SAP. I'm sure other systems have similar uh, collection mechanisms uh, where it, it facilitates the packaging process within the distribution center, for example. Um, so you can create this entity that is this box that contains these other items that, you know, um, it is a, is a useful set of of features. Um, so again, I'm not trying to push any particular software solution. I'm just saying that in my experience, you know, yes, these things are all uh, manageable, um, but it does depend on the the features probably of the software you've got. Insights, follow-up commentary, anybody? Uh, Chuck, go ahead, please. Yeah. So years ago, the first ERP system I worked with, and in fact, it was so many years ago with an MRP. Okay. I had to chisel things into stone. 
Um, the, it, it's interesting you bring it up because one of the capabilities that I've always missed in subsequent ERP systems was this capability to create an, an internal kit. It wasn't a stockable part. It was a collection of parts that would all show up on the, on the pick list for the final assembly. But you could have different versions. Okay. And the limitation being that because it was a pass through, if you, it was a virtual, it couldn't be done if, say, it was a preventive maintenance kit. Okay. You would literally have to create a separate subassembly in the system that's actually stockable, even though the bill of material is exactly the same. It could contain a manufactured subassembly or subassemblies. It could contain glue and gaskets and screws and all the different things, preventive maintenance part. In your original build, you just pass those things right through to the pick list. Okay. But then you have to have this redundant. It was a neat feature of the system. Uh, and indeed, there are many cases where we had to do exactly that. We had to have two, uh, the bundle and then the skew, if you will. The skew being the stockable and the bundle being that we would show up on the pick list because it made a lot more sense. And, and that was a function of that early, early MRP system that, frankly, I loved and missed. So. Okay, amazing. Any other follow-up commentary, uh, Dave, Chris? Chris, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just add that the sales analysis is not perfect either because, you know, if you're trying to get margin analysis on kit items, then you get into the revenue allocation part because they're all going to have cost, right? So do you assume the margin's the same for every kit component? So that's one little bit of a distortion there. I'll just point that out. So think about accuracy of analysis. So yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. We're priced up here, cost down here. Yep. So that's all I'm pointing out. Dave, uh, commentary? No, nothing to add. I think everybody's kind of covered it. I mean, um, the system that I'm used to that have, that I have the most experience in had, had similar capabilities, um, as Tom pointed out. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I did joke about it, but, you know, from an operations perspective, the consumption side to me was, was more important than some of that sales analysis. But I still thought that was a really great point, uh, by Chris. So. Okay, hey, one more question. So sales yeah, bomb, we, just to clarify, Tom, sales bomb, is that go through a configurator or is it literally a, a just a kidding type function in SAP? Because that that does bring something interesting. No, no configurator. There it's a it's a fixed set of of components. finished goods, for example, that you just say I'm I'm collecting these into a higher level SKU. They can be sold individually or they can be sold as a collection in this higher level SKU. And when somebody orders the higher level on the in the back end, you know, it may again outputs are potentially different, but in the system, you'll get a little bomb within the sales order that you can display wherever you want throughout the process, right? So, but there's no, there's no, um, uh, nothing, nothing more than that list, if you will. In a sense, that's what I described. The, the parts yeah. have to pass through to a picklet in yeah. the, in the different system. But, and, and what I was thinking of was more along in the manufacturing process, you know, mm -hmm. you know, in the, the, that final, you know, that final assembly build and the bill, the multi-level bill of material, what you're talking about is just that sales bomb. And that's exactly what it is. It's a pastor because somebody's got to know. Yeah. 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 And just to be fair, uh, I mean, uh, when you talk about the configurable bomb, you know, they are not going to be as strong with, uh, such as SAP, you know, other systems have deeper configurable capabilities. Those are different, but sales bomb and kidding uh, is uh, with, uh, okay. So the next segment I am going to open up and that is going to be for Chris. Okay. And that is going to be one of the things that Chuck mentioned. And that is related to, let's say the preventative maintenance, right? So he mentioned that there could be a bomb. Now, can a kit be used? in that scenario as well, because that seems to be more of the manufacturing. And sometimes that could be confusing for a lot of people when you look at different inventory. So in my case, again, 
depending upon the depth of the ERP system. Some ERP systems are going to have just one form of inventory. Some ERP systems have five different forms. So one is going to be your product inventory, then one is going to be your uh, you know, MRO inventory, then one is going to be your, what else is left? Uh, MRO and then uh, Tom, somebody has to help me. Uh, so WIP, QC inventory raw, is going to be WIP. different. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So these are different, uh, you know, inventory types that we have. So have you seen hitting in all of those inventory types? Or is it only applicable for these SKUs that you are trying to sell? I've, I've personally only seen it where you're trying to sell. And in the preventative maintenance, you know, the concept of a kit, I've seen it referenced a few different ways on the maintenance schedules. I've seen it where they list every every component that, you know, hey, you need the washer, the gasket, the glue. So, hey, I'm going out and doing a service. You need all these things. And I've seen the other one where there's a single line item reference to a kit listing. So I, I've seen it coded both ways in ERP systems. But in that case, you know, whether it's whether it's already in a bag or not, again, we go back to that. Is it a is it a manufactured kit that's on a maintenance schedule or do we see the individual line items? So I've seen it in a couple different scenarios on preventative maintenance schedule. Amazing. Tom, did you have, have a comment? Uh, I was going to say that um, in terms of real sales bomb type functionality, um, I have only seen that for sales to end users, um, not in the service process. That said, I have seen the use of kits as collected groups of parts, not an assembly in a technical sense, but just a collection. Um, as Chris was saying, you know, that are a, a, a separate skew pre-built or collected um, into a, 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 a new SKU unit um, that service engineers can take to go do a service call. Um, if there is a kind of a standard um, service that they are performing. Um, now, that's not through the sales order process. That is an inventory process where we basically are saying we will build um, a new SKU by assembling these parts. Um, and uh, I, I actually have not um, uh, been heavily exposed to that, so I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, we didn't use that kind of process at Varian where I was uh, in IT. Um, I believe it was used at GE, but I wasn't in IT then and I wasn't responsible for service. So, so I don't know exactly how they assembled those parts into a package that they could then give to a sales or a service engineer and say, here, here's what you need to go perform that service. Um, but uh, but I, I know it is done. Hey, uh, Chuck, do you have a comment? Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about a I'm thinking about a, a specific example in, in a two two. They're very very similar. Uh, and it was Chris that jogged my memory talking about raw inventory. You you, you and I've seen this both ways. One in which you have to apply direct labor, um, but it's truly done as a kit. And others where it's there's so little it's not really worth worrying about. It's an instance where your raw material is in a much larger form than the the size or the the they'll say the size to which it's delivered to your manufacturing floor for instance in machining you know there's you might have very very long pieces of metal rods now in a lot of machining operations you can put that into a bar feeder and it's going to feed it automatically but you might need a piece of metal that's a foot long or 15 inches long at a different part of your manufacturing process now you're not going to move out an entire 20 foot piece of metal out to that product 
to there because it creates other problems, other logistics problems within the organization or within the process flow. So you're going to chop that thing off and you're going to give it in the specified lengths and feed it out there. That's another type of kit. Depending on the organization, they may or may not charge that direct labor. They may not actually do that work order to size that. Another example would be cable, spools of cable, which I have a lot of experience. So they're all stocked by the foot and they're literally a mile of it. Okay. But you need 15 inches, 16 inches, 17.5 inches, and you're going to pre-cut that and you're going to ship it and you're going to take that kit and you're going to give that out. Okay. Um, And oftentimes that, so that's an internal kit where you're, it's, it's preparation of internal inventory for the next operation. And, and, Again, it's back to that. How's the organization going to handle it? It's it's oftentimes not that separate work order because the cost of the work order begins to exceed the cost of the labor put in breaking it down. So it's a negative return on investment that time spent. So you don't do, but you could have, you know, these are some interesting examples of internal kidding in the middle of the process, as Chris gave us in the introduction. Go ahead, Dave. You have a comment? Well, since we're picking sides, I think I'm going to have to disagree with Chuck a little bit uh, and and play Chris's role here for just a second. Uh, and and I, Chuck, I totally get where you're coming from. And I want to give you an example from an industry that I spent a lot of time in, the print manufacturing industry. And we would bring in uh, large rolls of paper and have to sheet that down in a lot of cases. And in a scenario like that, you would most definitely be creating an internal work order to do that conversion so you could capture and roll up the cost of that, you know, direct labor ad plus materials. So you've got a new, uh, you know, a new raw material cost for your consumption. I think where you're going is kind of the one off chance, you know, the one off scenario, if I followed what you were saying. And, and in those cases, I agree. I mean, most of the time that was just eaten up, uh, you know, <laughs> miscellaneous time. <laughs> Uh, well, it is. I mean, it, it literally, it does come down to if the time spent literally creating the paperwork and the time tracking exceeds the amount of labor and the input, at some point, this industrial engineer is going to say, hey, knock it off. Figure out a different way to account for it. Yeah. Okay. So the next segment that I'm going to open, and, and we are getting a lot of debatable topics today, and I think that will be equally debatable, and that's what I personally like. And okay. So one of the terms that you mentioned is the internal kits. Uh, and the way you were describing the scenario, it, some people might call it as whip as part of it. Uh, you know, so I don't know. Uh, Chris, uh, okay, back to you. Um, do you agree that this is probably going to be a kit, or would it be considered more as the whip? because that should be part of the manufacturing process. You know, and, and again, whip inventory, sub-assemblies could be considered, frankly. Again, if they're getting consumed. I mean, so really, that falls into that classification. I don't really consider a kit whip inventory, because typically, if you're kidding, it's going out the door. We go back to that. If it's pre-built, it's still considered. It's not finished good. It's not raw material anymore. That's why I put it in that middle class. In commentary there, Tom, whip versus uh, the sub-kits, I guess. I, I wouldn't consider kits that are sold to end consumers or kits that are consumed by uh, internal sales engineers to perform a service, for example, as we talked a little bit about, um, I wouldn't consider those things to be um, WIP. I would consider them to be either finished goods, um, in the case of a sale to a consumer, uh, or a another component part um, in your parts inventory that the service engineers have access to and consume when performing repairs or service. So no, I wouldn't consider that with. Okay, Dave, anything 
anything to add on that? Chris, hey, just, just to clarify, again, if it's not a product we're selling directly to the end consumer, it would be considered WIP. But if it is packaged up to end consumer sell, then you could call it finished goods. But if it's never sold to the direct end user, it would be classified as WIP because it's going to be consumed in a, a secondary manufacturing operation. That's how I would define those. So I don't know if that agrees with what you thought, Tom. Um, so, and again, people's experience can differ for sure, and that leads to some different uh, definitions um, or treatments, perhaps. But in my experience, if we're consuming that on a work order, for example, in the process of delivering a service to an end customer, um, which is how I'm thinking about this, it's a service engineer that's using parts, and in the process of delivering the service, it's not a sale of any kit or item to the user, to the end consumer, but it is the process of maybe servicing a big machine like Varian would sell to consumers a, a piece of technology. And now I'm performing a service. Could be, I suppose, a, an auto company that's performing a service when you take in your vehicle. They're not selling you the parts, but the parts are being consumed. It's, in my mind, not whipping. In my experience, it's not whip. It, whip to me is a level in a hierarchy for a product. Um, and it is consumed in the process of being uh, absorbed into that higher level product um, that's being created. If it's if there's no higher level product, it's being consumed at its level, um, then to me, it's not whip. It is more of a finished good, whether it's a finished good part or a finished good for a consumer. Any of that's, my, that's my experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I see it as whip once it's been allocated to the work order. In theory, it should be moved. So, you know, you're, you know, I've, I've worked in operations where the you have people who are picking inventory from the shelf, creating kits, sometimes in bags, you know, with the right quantities, that sort of thing. And they literally pull it off the shelf and they move it into a staging area queue. Once it's been allocated to that internal work order, that build order, it's whip. You know, prior to that, you know, it, it's not. And again, it comes down to how you're handling that labor on that work order. You could have them charge that labor against, you know, that first operation, that kidding against that work order, that build order and others. They may not do that. They may assign it right to overhead. So um, to me, it's it's in a different spot, preferably physically. So that when I it when I do my cycle counts, when I'm going to reconcile my inventory, I don't run the risk of double counting. Very interesting commentary there. And the other layer uh, that I wanted to bring in, that is going to be debatable labor allocation to kits. And I don't know if people have the labor uh, allocation to kits because typically that is probably going to be uh, you know perceived as more of the manufacturing bomb when you are going to have the actual manufacturing process. In kits, you don't really have as much labor involved. So I don't know whether you guys have seen the labor hours to be allocated to kits or not. So Chris, any any commentary there? Yeah, I've got a customer that did that. So they actually added a, a, a dummy item, you know, that had a million units and they added a line item for this dummy item that there was a labor to the bottom of the kit so that they would drive that into a applied labor contra account. So they did that. They kind of finagled to put a line item on there to pick up a tenth or whatever they thought it took to pick that particular kit. That's one way to start reallocating indirect labor to a direct labor or to an applied labor category. Dave, in your experience, labor uh, for kidding, labor hours for kidding? I've seen it both ways. I mean, it again, to me, depends on at what point you're, um, you know, you're assembling that kit, whether it's just in time or something that's going to be put back on the shelf and how you want to actually capture it. Majority of the time, I would say it's going to be not captured and, and handled by indirect, the majority of them, at least in my experience. Well, there's an interesting point going back to the pallet. Um, you know, the shrink wrap pallet, as Tom was talking about earlier, I've seen in, you know, food distribution facilities um, where they're supplying 
um, they're supplying cases, they're supplying, supplying individual boxes, and they're also supplying um, fresh food that has been partially prepared. And they're creating labor, okay? But it's really a distribution facility. And most everything they do is, is indirect, okay? They're, they, they capture that and they charge it as a, as a bundle, okay? It, but it's, it's truly not a skew. I mean, if you've got someone who's, you know, pulling out 52 carrots, Okay, and putting them into a bag. And that's where oftentimes it's that labor comes from packaging. You're putting 52 carrots in a bag. There's clearly labor. Um, but how does the company account for that? Ultimately, they're, they're selling, you know, 52 carrots, 16 pieces of celery, a case of soda, you know, et cetera, et cetera, shrink wrapped on the pallet. And they're going out in that. But how do they account for it? I think in it's got, again, it comes back to the organization and, and distribution. They may just say, okay, that's overall our overhead and we're going to mark it up, right? This is our multiplier and this is what you get, you know, in terms of, you know, how you mark up the price. Let me check. Uh, Tom, labor uh, allocation for kids. So I think I agree with my colleagues in this case. Um, I, I've seen it both ways. I think Dave said it already that in most cases, and I think most of us have, I think, agree that it's, it's usually handled as indirect. Um, I've seen an example. I've been part of a company where uh, what Chris described as, you know, an extra line item to help account for the cost of the kidding process. I've seen that in one instance myself. And uh, and I've seen where um, in a packaging station in a distribution center uh, using some of the features I was talking about earlier, like handling units um, that, you know, people are not just putting things in a random box and Throwing in uh, completely unaccounted for material, um, and it just gets you know assigned to indirect cost. Um, they're actually scanning um, the type type of box, and that's getting assigned to the sales order to the handling unit. Um, the type of additional packaging they're putting in is you know part of a, a scan at the packaging station in the distribution center, and those costs are actually collected. They're recognized and collected and documented. Um, within the sales order as additional items that would not be visible perhaps to the customer, maybe there'd be a line item that says, you know, packaging costs or something, but um, they wouldn't be in detail. Um, but that that is captured within the sales process. So I've seen it as a line item. I've seen it as, you know, uh, an additional type of cost that's packaging on, on an order. Um, and I've seen it just not appear at all. And it's just part of the cost of doing business. Um, and it's completely indirect. So uh, there, there are many ways, I guess, to handle it. Um, and uh, and kind of to Chuck's comment, some of it depends on how, how, how worthwhile, how important is it, how costly is some of this stuff um, to make it worth your while to put in the time and effort to design the process and capture the goes costs, you know, scan that stuff. Is it is it really worth the time and effort? Well, packaging, custom packaging can oftentimes be the last step in a work order. Where you're bringing in a you know a certain quantity of specific materials and capturing significant significant labor, uh, I've been involved in you know in you know the last uh, operation that I ran, it would take two hours to package a product, you know, and depending on the size of the product, the the bill of material will be slightly different, you know, more board foot of this, you know, more you know less board foot of that, et cetera. So it it can be in custom packaging, which is more common than you might think. Yeah, and I was actually talking. Uh, Chuck, more about the sales bomb uh, concept where there's not really a true production order or work order. It's simply a, a picking process where in the midst of the pick, we do this 
little assembly or collection and bundling. Um, and that's typically, in my experience, typically not uh, a process that has as much rigor around it as work order production and, 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 and an ability to you know, really collect those costs in a classical sense. Um, so anyway, okay. but I, I hear what you're saying. So, guys, the only thing we can take right now is going to be closing advice, okay? Uh, so, Chris, what would be your closing advice, please? Yeah, I think there's two sides of this. Focus on the customer experience first and just understand how easy it's going to be for your customers to interact. Put a kit together, select their components, even your customer service. And, again, you're going to have to do some time trials and look at the labor effort. And I think then you got to chase the backside through, too, and just, just look at efficiencies. That's where I would start. Thank you so much, Chris, for that. Uh, Dave, what would be your closing advice, please? Yeah, I mean, uh, understand your process. Make sure that you've got tight inventory controls because that's where it's all going to stem from once you get the customer side and uh, customer service side figured out. Okay, amazing. Thank you, Steve, for that. Chuck, what would be your closing advice? Do your research and do your planning. It takes a lot of hard work to do the research and the planning, but it's worth every single second. As I said, kidding is the great differentiator. If you can add value, you can close more. the differentiator. Thank you so much, Chuck, for that. Uh, Tom, what would be your closing advice? Understand the benefits and the costs uh, as completely as you can. We didn't, uh, at least I, I know I apologize, I joined late. I didn't hear and I didn't speak myself about uh, many of the, the costs and the challenges. I think we touched on them a little bit. Um, the planning com- complexity, I think we touched on. Um, the extra cost of having packaging stations um, that you wouldn't, if you didn't do the kidding, you might not have. Um, the complexity of pricing. Uh, Chris talked about it a little bit when it comes to uh, um, analytics, but I think just how to handle pricing in general, whether to charge fees, you know, all of these things uh, and, and the damage. What if one of the items is damaged? How do you handle that? What if somebody wants to do a return? How do you handle that? Uh, so uh, I think I heard Chris or somebody talking about you know, substitution of items in the process. Again, there are a lot of potential complexities that could add a lot of cost if you try and really deal with all of these things. Um, and so make sure that the benefits outweigh all those costs. All right. Amazing, amazing advice there. That's it for today, guys. So if you joined for the first time, this was part of our digital transformation series for which we meet every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. We pick one topic related to digital transformation. So don't miss next week's show. We are great here. On that note, thanks again, everyone, for your time and insights. Thanks, everybody. See you guys soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests, and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Chris Garadini, head over to turnkeytech.com. It's T-U-R-N-K-E-Y-T-E-C.com. If you want to learn more about Dave Chrysler, head over to thechrysler.club. It's T-H-E-C-R-Y-S-L-E-R dot C-L-U-B. If you want to learn more about Chuck Coxett, head over to presensus.com. It's P-R-O-C-E-N-S-I-S dot com. If you want to learn more about Tom Rodden, follow and connect with him on LinkedIn. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Pete Gret, who shares his insights into inventory access and obsolescence. Also, the interview with Bernard Hoare, who shares his insights into the nuances 
of the Southeast Asian market. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you and I hope to catch you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.